0: If you'll turn to Romans chapter 2, I want to welcome you to our study. If you have not been a part of this, you can go online and listen to the previous messages to catch up with us. But if you don't have a Bible, pardon me, just raise your hand. We're happy to give you a Bible. If you're not used to reading the Bible in church, I wasn't. The church I went to, we never read the Bible, so that was all new to me. But one of the things, just to let you in on... Where we're coming from is we believe that the Bible is God's word. Now, even if you don't believe that at this point, we want you to at least read it with us, study it, interpret it, and then decide whether or not you choose to believe it and whether or not it is the word of God. Now, it doesn't become the word of God because you believe that, but it claims to be the word of God. We said that the book of Romans is a really important book, and we framed it around the theme of not ashamed of the gospel and we're talking about what is the gospel this good news message how god powerfully saves sinners by granting them his righteousness through faith and so paul says i'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of god for salvation and so one of the things i want you to think about is that god wants you and me to be able to understand the gospel message of salvation every christian should Not only embrace the gospel and understand exactly what the gospel is in their salvation, but we should be able to teach that to others. If you haven't learned how to communicate the gospel to others, the book of Romans is a great way to learn that. And it saddens me because I'll drive past the Jehovah's Witness kingdom halls on Tuesday night, and they're packed, and they're studying. And then on Saturday mornings, they all go out into neighborhoods, and they share their gospel, which according to Paul, if it's not the gospel of Christ... It's a gospel that brings in a curse from God, but yet they're, they're zealous to communicate their gospel, and yet at times, believing Christians don't take the time to really think through and study the gospel in a way that we can communicate it to others. So even if you're a believer, the book of Romans will remind you not only how to share the gospel, but how important the gospel is for us. So as we begin, We saw in 118 through 320, the big picture of the first part of the book is that man needs God's righteousness, that people need to be saved. Most people do not know this. This is not something that you would intuitively figure out. Most people think that they're okay with God. So beginning in 118, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And so in the first chapter, what he did is he showed us that irreligious people are going to be judged by God, and they're going to go to hell, because they suppress the truth, they know in their conscience that what they're doing is wrong, but they keep on doing it, and they're inexcusable for changing the truth of God for lie, and all their wickedness, murder, and everything. But there are different flavors of sinners, and as you and I witness to our friends, our family members, many of them are not godless, irreligious pagans who hate everybody, and murderers and drug addicts, most of us, many of the people we associate with are pretty nice people, not all of them, but moral people, religious people, and sometimes they're harder to witness to because they think that they're good, and so what Paul did in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, we saw last week that even moral people deserve God's judgment, so he said in chapter 2, verse 1, you're without excuse if you judge others because you do these things, Well, this morning we're going to turn to chapter 2, verse 17, and we're going to find that Jewish people, these privileged people who have God's promises, they also deserve God's judgment. And perhaps a great summarizing verse would be chapter 3. I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 9, for just a moment, because this sort of frames out the first section of the book. God is sitting on the bench as the judge. He's looking out on the world of humanity, many of them thinking, when it's my turn, he's going to justify me and I'm going to get in. And the Apostle Paul, through the unfolding of God's revelation, is showing people, if you're an irreligious person, you're a godless pagan, you're going to hell. If you're a moral person and you're judging others, you do the same things, you're going to hell. And even if you're a Jewish person and you think you have these special privileges, you're going to hell. So look at chapter 3, verse 9, like Paul as the lawyer with the closing charges. What then? Are we better than they? Are we Jews better than Gentiles? Not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles, are all under sin. And this is one of the things that concerns me. Many of you have been trained to witness using the Romans road. And so you turn to Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And then you turn to Romans six twenty three and you say, the wages of sin is death. Now, what concerns me there is most people don't know what that means. If you tell someone, look, God says in the Bible, we're all sinners. They're like, yeah, well, I mean, I'm not a murderer. And then you say to them, there's a penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. In their mind, they just think that means they're going to die. And frankly, that's not a revelation. People aren't like, I'm going to end up in a box someday. So what Romans 2 does is it says, look, the penalty for sin is tribulation, distress, wrath, eternal torment, hell, and it lasts forever, okay? That's really important when we witness to people. If you just tell them, if you don't, if you don't have your sins forgiven, you're going you're gonna to die, or you're going to be away from Christ, then you're not giving them the gospel. There's a lot at stake. The gospel has some serious, sobering warnings if you don't come to christ jesus says you're going to die in your sins and you're going to go to hell now ironically even when people come to that belief they still are deceived because they think yes but i do good stuff i so so their last leg to stand on is yeah you're, you're cutting out all my my confidence but i'm a good person and i do good stuff so Paul's going to end this section in chapter 3, verse 20, by saying, look, by the works of the law, no flesh is going to get right with God, because by works, you can't earn your way to God, right? So by the time he's done, everybody's out there like, dang, I'm, I'm doomed, I'm condemned. And until people come to that point, right, they, they think, well, I, I, I'm an exception, I'm not going to hell. So we need to learn how to take our time in witnessing to people, read through this passage, invite your friends, hey, let's just read this. And ask them, as we're reading through this, as it mentions judgment, what are you gonna tell God at Judgment Day? Now, if you were to ask a Jew, what are you gonna tell God at Judgment Day as to why you think he's gonna let you into heaven? They would've said two things. Number one, because we have the true God and the true Bible. Now, it wouldn't have been the New Testament, the Old Testament. We have the true Bible and the true God. That would be their first line of evidence. Of course, the stupid Gentiles are out there worshiping all stuff. We know the true God. And then secondly, they would say, and we have circumcision. We have performed a ceremony that allows us to be confident that we're going to heaven. And so Paul goes, hmm, well, Jewish friends, let me just chop those arguments down so that you realize Knowing the Bible and knowing the, the truth about God won't get you to heaven, and religious ceremonies won't get you to heaven. So let's start in verses 17 through 24. If you're taking notes, what we're going to see in 17 through 24 is that knowing the Bible is the truth. That won't save you from judgment. See, we, we, we confuse this idea. Well, well, our religion is the right religion, therefore I'm in. Now, the idea of Jews knowing that their religion is the right religion... That's true. In fact, even Jesus, when he was asked, who's right, right? So many people today say, oh, all religions are just a different way to get to heaven. You take the train, I take the bus, you know, you take a plane, I take a helicopter. They're all going to the same place. That's ridiculous. Because many of them have have propositional statements that are mutually contradictory. God can't be this and this if they contradict. And this God can't be this God. So Jesus weighed in on this once. The Samaritans were, you know, kind of like Jews. And so the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, who's right? Jesus said in John 4.22, you might jot this verse down. When people go, all religions are right. Jesus says, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. You're like, Jesus, that was a little politically kind of a little straightforward. I, I once was sharing Christ with a man sitting in my office and he, and he was a, a Buddhist and he had a little statue of Buddha around his neck, his little gold statue of Buddha. And he put it on my desk, there's no lie, and he says, This is Lord Buddha. Right? Now, I could have quoted Jesus, I could have said, Listen here, fella. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. The God of the Bible is the true God, not some dopey little statue of yours. I didn't feel like that was the appropriate time or place to say it that way. But at the same time, it's important to realize that people who grow up in the Judeo-Christian ethic can deceive themselves into thinking, because I, I know the Bible is the truth and it's a true God, that that's gonna save me from judgment. So let's look at how Paul develops this. The Jewish mistake was they actually had failed to keep God's word, and they assumed that possessing the law was enough to get them into heaven. So three things we're going to look at. Number one, Jews were comfortable that the Bible was the truth. They were confident that they were supposed to teach the pagans, but they were complete failures at obeying it. So so let's look at verse 17, 17 and 18. The Jews were very comfortable because they knew God's word. So Paul goes, all right, so you think you're going to go to heaven. You bear the name Jew. You rely upon the law. We're like, we got the Bible. You boast in God like our God, Jehovah, is the real God. He goes, that's cool. You know his will. You know about sacrifice and how to get right with God. In fact, you approve the things that are essential because you've been instructed out of the law. And they're like, as a matter of fact, yeah. Paul goes, okay, so you're comfortable because you know the Bible. But secondly, he says, not only are you comfortable, but, but that's led to a false confidence because you know the truth. You have assumed that now you are the confident one who teaches everybody else. So you go to your Gentile neighbor and you're like, ah, blind, ignorant fool. He, he worships Zeus. <laughs> Doesn't he know? So, so look how Paul kind of sets them up in verse 19. He goes, you Jews are confident that you are a guide to the blind. In other words, all other religions, they're just blind, right? You're confident that you are a light to those who are in darkness. A corrector of the foolish and a teacher of babes or immature. Now, when you think about it, there is some truth to that. The Bible says, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible does shed light and give truth. The Bible does correct foolishness. The Bible says the law of the Lord is perfect. It converts men's souls. So in that sense, they were right. They're like, hey, we got the book here. We got the map. And we are confident that because we have this book that, man, certainly God's not going to judge us. But Paul says, listen, I know you're comfortable and you're confident, but here's the problem. You're a complete failure when it comes to doing what it says. So notice how he turns, turns the corner, and he says, that's really cool. Verse 21, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal... Boy, that's great that you know thou shalt not steal. He goes, do you steal? You who say one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? So someone might say, well, surely I'm going to heaven. I teach CCD, right? You're like, that's cool. Do you do it? Now, when I first read this, I was like, wait a minute. I could understand Paul saying this about pagans being thieves, idolaters, or adulterers, breaking into temples and robbing. But I could could see him saying that about Gentiles, rather. But Jews? And so it it led to this question. Why would he speak of Jews as thieves and robbers and adulterers? Because that, that didn't characterize Jews broadly. So sometimes reading commentaries can help you sort of get some other ideas. So Douglas Moo, who's a very famous commentator on Romans, said this. He said, it's not that all Jews commit these sins. It's not like every Jew was an adulterer. But he said, these sins are representative of the contradiction between claim and conduct that pervades Judaism. One of the things that we teach young men as they're learning to preach is, if it's important, say it again. A contradiction between what they claim and their conduct. You're like, yeah, that's kind of like do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. And that's what Paul's saying. He's going, okay, so you Jews who are teaching everybody else because we know the truth, are, are you living that way? And the irony is, in essence, we call this hypocrisy. And there are a lot of people who go to church and are religious, but it hasn't changed their life, and so they're teaching CCD and teaching Sunday school. But they don't do what it says, and this is an age-old danger with religion, especially when it's the truth, is that knowing it is no substitute for doing it. And this is what angered Jesus when he was on earth. He said to the religious leaders, now remember, the common Jew was like Pharisees, They are the man. We love the Pharisees. So right in front of the common people, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he goes, you Pharisees, you sit in the chair of Moses and you teach people the law and you tell them what to do. You tell them what to observe, but you don't do it. Jesus said that. You say things, but you don't do them. Jesus says, you tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but you won't lift a finger, right? And, it, and it's pretty sad because, man, that cuts to the bone a little bit Chris he's like, well, I'm going to drop my kids off at Sunday school, and you're not going to go to church? Well, no, but, you know, I mean, come on. Kids need a little religion, you know? I'm going to teach my kids that it's wrong to lie, but I lie. You know, I curse, but hey, don't you talk like that. So so this idea of having the Bible and teaching others, if you don't do it, Paul says, that's hypocrisy. In essence, this is just another way of saying that's what Gentiles do. They suppress the truth by exchanging it for a lie. You're proud that you have the truth. You just don't do it. And what happens is when people who claim to have the truth and don't do it, Look at the next verse, verse 24. It has terrible results in the community. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Now, it's kind of interesting because when God chose Israel, he said, look, I'm going to save you from your sins, and I'm going to change you, and then you're going to be a light to the nations, and these godless pagans are going to look at you, and they're going to be attracted to the light, and they're going to become worshipers of the true God. But he says, they look at you and they're like, these guys are a bunch of hypocrites. And so they blaspheme God. They go, if that's what the God of the Jews is like, I don't want anything to do with that. But I couldn't help but think, isn't this also what's going on in American Christianity? How many people call themselves born-again Christians? They just don't live that way? A.W. Tozer said, the reason there aren't more Christians in America is because of Christians in America. So this is a real challenge for us to say, if I, if I claim to be a believer, and go, yeah, the Bible's the truth, Jesus is the truth, am I living that way? So Paul has cut off this idea that having the Bible is gonna give you a pass from religious judgment. But now he's gonna to move to a second thing. Because a lot of people not only think they're gonna to get to heaven because our religion's the right religion, but the second is, they put confidence in their religious ceremonies. Now to Jewish people, their most important ceremony was circumcision. We don't even talk about that other than is it it better for kids hygienically to get circumcised? In our culture, we, we stress ceremonies like baptism, right? So I can't tell you how many times I've had someone ask me, will you baptize my baby? And I'm like, well, why? well, I don't want my baby to go to limbo or purgatory. You know, if you're not baptized, you're not going to go to heaven. And I go, okay, so, so someone has told you that religious ceremonies get you to heaven. And they're like, yeah. So notice how Paul's going to deal with this because this will be helpful for you when you're witnessing to your friends and they go, well, how do you get to heaven? Well, you have to go to mass or you have to say confession or you have to do unto others, right? And you go, well, where did you get that from the Bible? Well, That's what we were taught. So notice the Jews were believing that circumcision in itself was enough to save you. So the first thing Paul's going to say is this. Ceremony without sincere faith is worthless. Look at verse 25. For indeed, circumcision, which is ceremony, is of value if you practice it. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So ceremony without sincere faith is worthless. Who cares if you're baptized if you don't trust the Lord? But then he says this, and this is the most important thing. Ceremonies are worthless if your heart hasn't been changed by God. And what do you think about that? The goal of the gospel is to have a person become a loving, forgiven, Christ-like person. But most people think Christianity is a bunch of rules that you have to keep and hope that you're going to get into heaven. And their heart is never changed by God. But they're very religious. So Paul says, look, here, here are you Jews and you're depending on your ceremonies and yet you, you, your heart is not changed. And he says, let me give you an exhibit. I'm going to take a Gentile who's never been circumcised, but his heart has been changed by God. Who do you think is right with God? Who do you think is going to go to heaven? Look at verse 26, if the uncircumcised man, this would be a Gentile, he keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who though you have the law, you transgress or break the law? No, we need to stop there and he go, wait a minute, Paul, I don't get it. You're telling us we're all sinners. How can you talk about a Gentile who keeps the requirements of the law? I thought none of us could keep the requirements of the law. See, what Paul's telling us here is that we don't keep the requirements of the law in order to get to heaven. But what is it that the law really requires? God wants us to love God and love others. That's, that's, the, that's what the law really requires and the only way that that's going to happen is when God changes your heart and puts his spirit in you but ironically when Paul comes to chapter 8 this is what he says he goes now that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us he says "We, we we believers can fulfill the requirement of the law because we don't walk in the flesh but in the spirit our heart has been changed now this is really important Religion without a changed heart is worthless. And so look how he words it, because this is, this is just powerful. He goes, look, Jewish people, he is not a Jew, verse 28, who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit. It's not by the letter, and his praise is not from God. Men, but from God. Now, can you imagine if that was our evangelism method? Excuse me, can I have a, ask you a question? Have you been circumcised? What are you? I'm... No, 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 no. I mean, has your heart been circumcised? Most people be like, what in the world are you talking about? Okay? But I want to start with this understanding. That for a Jewish person to hear the phrase, circumcised of heart, was not like, where'd that come from? That was taught in the Old Testament. And I want to give you some verses to write down, because I want you to study this and think about the changed heart. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, this is what God says. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in order to love the Lord your God with all your heart. See, this is what we need to understand about Christianity. God's not saying, quit your cussing, quit your lying, quit your drugs, and quit your drinking. He says, come to me in repentance and faith, and let me circumcise your heart. I got to change that thing radically. I'm not going to polish up a rotten apple. I'm going to do an inward transformation. True change begins on the inside, not on the outside. This is what Jesus said about hypocrites. He goes, you guys clean up the outside of the cup when inside you're full of wickedness and rottenness. So a real Christian is somebody who comes to God and says, God, I know I'm messed up and I want you to change my heart. It's kind of like what I call a recall. How many of you have ever got a recall for your car? Probably most of us, you know, you know, the ignition doesn't work or the brake or the, you know, for me, I took mine back because it said that the um, airbag might go off, right? Most of us don't even go back for the recall, but Jesus puts out a recall. He says, warning, your heart is defective, but if you bring it to the Jesus shop, he will take out that defective heart, he will give you a new heart, and you will become born again. You're like, I don't know if I'll have time for that. He says, oh, by the way, unless a man's born again, he will not enter the kingdom of God. You're like, I'm too busy for that. I got to go to church. He's like, what? What? If I don't change your heart, you're not going to go to heaven. And this is a prominent theme of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Listen to these verses. God God, God spoke of this new covenant that Jesus brought with his blood. He said, this is the covenant I'll make after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And if they didn't catch it when they read through their devotions in Jeremiah, he goes, then you'll catch it in Ezekiel 11. Listen to Ezekiel 11. God says, I'll give you one heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take away your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh that you may walk in my statutes. So so this theme's prevailing in the Old Testament. If you want to be pleasing to God, you come to him as a sinner. You realize that Christ is the only way. And you ask God to change your heart. and, and, And his spirit comes into you and you're forgiven. And now you've got a... For lack of a better illustration, I'll say, God, God takes a look at your computer of your heart, the way you think. And he goes, you go, God, could, could you just, um, you know, just clean up, the, clean up the, the hard drive? And he goes, no, no. He goes, I can't clean that thing up. I have to give you a new one. I'm going to have to remove that heart of yours and give you a brand new one. But here's the cool thing. When I put my spirit in you, when I forgive your sins and I give you that new heart, you're going you're gonna to walk in my commandments. And that's a beautiful promise from God. And I think this is what Jesus meant when he said to Nicodemus, he said, Nick, here's the problem. You've got to be born again, right? And then he uses an illustration of the wind. He says, when the wind blows, it goes wherever it wishes. You don't, you don't hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from, where it's going. So, so, so you're like, well, how do I know when it's windy? I can't see the wind. But look out this window right now. Is it windy? You go, no, because the leaves aren't blowing. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of it. Right? And the same thing with a chain's heart. I can't see inside someone's heart to see if they've been born again. But I can see the effects of it. And we're going to talk about that. Because a heart that's been circumcised by God, Paul says, they will begin to, to keep the requirements of the law. They want to please God. Not perfectly. So we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But the last thing Paul's going to do here is he's going to, he's going to deal with an objection, and then, then we're going to close with some applications. But in chapter 3, Paul's, Paul knows what Jews are thinking. Jews are like, come on, man, are you serious? We're Jews. We're gone to heaven. We're children of Abraham. We're circumcised, and we have the law of the living God. And you're going to tell us that we have no more opportunity to get to heaven than a Gentile? And Paul goes, Yeah. And probably everywhere he preached that, he got objections. So in 3, 1 through 8, he wants to answer these objections. And the first objection is this. Then what's the benefit of even being a Jew? Why why would that even matter if I'm a Jew? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He goes, you just slam the Jews and you say, we're not going to go to heaven any more than Gentiles. Then what's the advantage? What's the benefit of being circumcised? Why should I even have the Bible in these ceremonies? And Paul goes, wait, wait, wait. There's a great benefit. Now, in in chapter 9, he's going to list a whole bunch of benefits. You have the covenant. You have the promises. But for now, he just lists one benefit. He goes, let me tell you why you had a benefit. He says, you were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, when I first read that, I thought he just meant, and this is true, you got the Bible. You got the only true roadmap. That's a big benefit. And I agree with that. this is why I think, man, I shudder to think of the judgment, because I believe there are degrees of judgment in hell, because Jesus said, "The people of Sodom and Gomorrah have more tolerable judgment. they're still going to hell, than you people who watch me do miracles and refuse to repent. And this is why I believe that kids who grow up, and if you're growing up in a Christian home and you reject Christ, and if you go to church and you're learning the Bible and you reject Christ, pity your soul how much more judgment will come upon you because you knew the truth and you just turned away from it. So, so Paul says, look, it's, it's a great privilege because they were entrusted with the oracles of God. But what I never knew is this word oracles is rarely used. It's only used, I think, twice in the New Testament. But the word itself can frequently have a reference to not just all of the Bible, but to the promises, Okay. And so the idea here is that God made particular promises to the Jews. He promised that they would be his chosen people. He promised that he would be their God forever. He promised that he would give them a new heaven and a new earth. He promised to come to earth and to redeem them. And so so the Jewish people are like, okay, so wait a minute, you're telling me that there's no advantage to be a Jew? And he goes, yes, there is. There's a great advantage. You have God's Special promises to the Jews. So you can see what the Jews think. He's going, yeah, well, what if none of us believed it? Then God's not faithful because I don't see many Jews getting saved. So basically, you want me to believe John 3.16, I don't even believe Genesis 12 because God made all these promises to us and he hasn't kept them to us. And Paul goes, no, 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 here's where you're missing the point, Jew." Just because God made promises to Jews, those promises are conditional on your repentance. And it'll be just as faithful of God to put you in hell because you didn't believe his promises, and then one day fulfill his promise to another generation of Jews. So look how he develops this. He says, what then, if they have the promises, what if some of them did not believe? And in essence, most of them, when the gospel was preached at first, did not believe. Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? In other words, if God made promise to them, most of the Jews didn't believe it, it's not God's fault. He goes, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, and every man's a liar. And he quotes from David in Psalm 51. When David admitted his sin, Lord, he goes, against you I sinned. I'm saying this so that you might be justified. In the day that you judge men, I'm just getting it out on the table. I was wrong, you were right. And so what God is telling us here, that he's, he's right and Jews are wrong, even though he made them promises, it's not his unfaithfulness, it's their unbelief, and their judgment's going to come on them because they rejected Christ. But as they heard about that, one of the other things they kept hearing when Paul talked about grace is this, well, if sinning brings God's grace, then maybe we should sin more. So verse five, Paul says, if my unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for how will God judge the world? Right? Like if you said, ladies and gentlemen, you were about to meet the judge of the universe, and Charles Manson comes out. You're like, Gah! Right? So Paul says... If if God who inflicted wrath were unrighteousness, how can he judge the world? But he's not unrighteous. And when he puts people in hell, it's absolutely their fault. And Jews are going, you didn't keep your promises. And he's going, no, I kept my promises. You didn't believe my promises, and therefore I have every right to put you in hell. And then Paul goes on, he says, and by the way, you people that are saying that I'm telling you to be bad, so good will come, because that's what people are saying He's so disgusted with them. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and they say something so stupid and so ridiculous and so absolutely preposterous and it's absolutely, so they go, so what you're saying is this. And you're like, you almost just wanna say, just, just shut up. You know, just stop, right? But notice he, he, he's disturbed. He goes, verse seven, if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say, He goes, yeah, this is what people say that I say. Let us do evil that good may come. And Paul just goes, their condemnation is just. I don't even want to talk about that. It's so self-evident that they're going to go to hell. I don't even want to go there, right? So you go, what did Pastor Tom talk about? He said Jews are going to hell. Yeah, but is that really the point of this passage? If I'm not a Jew, I go, well, this doesn't have anything to do to me. So I want, I want us to close with a couple of thoughts. Number one, if Paul's point here is, hey, he's already hammered irreligious people. He's already spoken to moral people. But then he says, all right, you religious people who are confident in your ceremonies. I'm baptized. I do my confessions. I say the Eucharist. I take the Eucharist. If you're confident in your ceremonies, you need to ask yourself this question. Has God changed your heart. I want each one of you to just think about that. Has God changed your heart? And you're like, well, well I don't know. I'll give me an illustration. Suppose the doctor says to you, you know, all four of your main arteries are clogged. You're going to have to have a quadruple bypass, right? And a week later, after the surgery, someone says, how'd the surgery go? did they fix your heart and you go I don't know. I don't know if I had surgery. Think that would happen? Anybody here had surgery on your heart? Anybody know somebody that did? You think they knew it? They're like, "I don't What are these What are these staples in my chest? Get them out of here." Right? People know when their heart has been operated on. Now let me be careful here because To have your heart changed by God does not mean that you had to have some crazy, dramatic, overnight thing like, what just happened? Okay? It's like the wind. It's mysterious. Some of you grew up. From childhood, you heard how to be saved through faith in Christ. You heard the true way. So you don't need to know when God changed your heart. You just need to ask yourself, Has my heart been circumcised? Have I been changed in my heart? It may be very, very gradual. Nevertheless, you should be able to say, you know what, I see evidences of a changed heart. Let me give you some examples. One of the biggest evidences of a changed heart is your attitude towards sin. Most people who don't have a changed heart enjoy sin and indulge in sin. And I'm not talking about shooting crack and, you know, murdering people, they just live for themselves, do what they want, have sex if they're not going to get caught or whatever, just lie, just, you know, whatever's the easy path, right? But if you're born again, listen to this verse, those who have been born again from God, write this down, 1 John 3, 9, will not continually practice sin. Why? Because he says, because it's impossible For them to continually practice sin because God's seed abides in them. In other words, the nature of a changed heart, a lot of it has to do with your attitude towards sin. So listen carefully. I'm not saying, do you still look at porn or do you still do something? Did you lie this week? You're not saved. Did you get drunk? Did you take drugs? You're not saved. Okay? That's not the issue. Is has God changed your heart? What happens when you sin? Does it bother you? Do you you feel remorse and want to repent and come back to Christ? Or do you just go, hey, I'm saved. (laughs) I raised my hand. Jesus says, some people will call me Lord, Lord. They'll say, I never knew you. You just practice iniquity. You were never born again. Your heart was never changed. Here's another example. How do I know if my heart's been changed? The book of 1 John says this. Those who have been born of God love the brethren. So think about your experience with other Christians. Do do you find yourself going, man, them born-again people are weird. I don't like to be around Christians. They're they're creepy, and they make me uncomfortable. I feel much more comfortable at the club with my homies. You know what I'm saying? If you don't like being around Christians at all, and I understand Christians are pains in the neck, and I'm one of them, and so are you. Don't act like you're any better. That's why somebody said, don't go to a perfect church because you'll ruin it when you get there. But we got a bunch of blemishes and flaws, and we're dopes and stuff like that, but a general mark of a changed heart is Christians like to be around other Christians. Christians are not ashamed of Christ. Christians love Christ. They want to sing about him. They want to pray. They want to be with other believers. If that stuff is like, ooh, man, that's creepy. I don't understand the Bible. I don't know what you nuts are talking about. I look around these people singing. What is wrong with them? Right? Then just ask yourself, has God changed my heart? Now, here's the good news. Is it Even if you go, I don't even know whether he changed my heart. Well, guess what? God's all scrubbed up and ready to do surgery. He always is. Jesus says, no one who comes to me will I cast out. He won't say, ew, not that heart, you dirty hypocrite. And so the beauty is, is you can say, God, if I'm not sure you changed my heart, this morning, the best I know how, I want you to change my heart. I don't want to just be a selfish, hypocritical, outward, external person. I want to be forgiven and changed. And frankly, God, I've tried being religious. I've tried to break bad habits, and it doesn't work. Being a Christian is not being a little red train. I think I can. I think I can. Being a Christian is going, my train's broke. I need a new train, God. And he goes, now we can do business. And that's what it means to be born again. You don't have to clean up your life and go, I hope God will accept me. Come broken, come messed up, come as you are. And that's the beauty of grace. It's free. Jesus didn't die on the cross to say, it's finished. Now change yourself. He goes, I'll give you a new heart. And and so the interesting thing is when you hear that, you're like, tell them, Brother Alan. You tell them. You give it to them. But then let me ask you this. God doesn't just change our hearts. He continues to change our heart. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, is he talking to me? And I go, yeah. If you're born again, we are changed permanently and powerfully, but we're also being changed, right? And it's far more than externals. I think we go, well, I don't curse anymore. I don't get drunk. And so I'm a good Christian. And God's going, no, no, I got a lot of work to do in your heart. You're proud. You're anxious, you're fearful. You're hypocritical, you fear men. You're judgmental, you're selfish, you're lazy. And so we all have to understand that the gospel is continually changing our heart. And remember, how many of you ever went to the Franklin Institute and got to walk through the heart? Yeah? So picture your heart like this big system that has all these different areas. And the Bible says the word of God pierces into our heart and discerns our thoughts and motives. And God starts visiting a certain room, and you you close the door, and you go, you can't come in here, God. And I can tell you this, if you're a Christian, that never works. He has all the keys, right? You're like, lock him out. I'm not changing, I like doing this, right? It never works. And you're like, but I just wanna do this for a little bit longer. It never works. It's always the right thing to do, to surrender to the Lord and say, Jesus, Thank you for my new heart. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Please forgive me and help me to grow. And, and what's more dangerous is when we go, Yeah, I know a lot of people need that. Hebrews 3 says this We need to exhort one another, lest any of us have a hardened heart by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so subtle, we can really have a messed up heart as a Christian. And really think, hey, I have my devotions today. Like, it's like one guy said to me, as he's confessing his affair in front of me with his wife sitting there, he goes, but the coolest thing is, we used to read the Bible and she got saved. Like, like me and the wife were supposed to go, that's awesome. You led your adulterous affair woman to Christ. Praise the Lord. Like, what are we thinking? And this shows how dangerous sin is. And so thank God that we could pray for one another and stay in the word and be in small groups and say, listen, I need you to pray for me because, man, I'm getting beaten down in this area. That's why we urge you to have people to be accountable to, to pray with, and to encourage one another. Because here's what's gonna happen. The more we change on the inside, the more attractive this church is gonna be to unbelievers. I really believe that. That our greatest opportunity to reach this community is not mailers, flyers, or let's get a big billboard, or let's give a free TV. It's let God change our heart and go back to your family, and they see the difference in you. The way that you young people are acting at school, the way that you, you treat your parents, the way you treat your children, the way you're, you're changing in your marriage. You go, this is the only way I know how to relate to my spouse. And God goes, yeah, but I could change your heart. And things happen, and, and, and so instead of the name of God being blasphemed, people are going, hey, I want to find out how I can become a Christian So let me just say, the last thing is this. Paul's saying, don't depend on your religious ceremonies to get you to heaven. So if you were taught that being baptized will protect your baby, or being baptized will get you to heaven, that's not what the Bible says. It's faith in Jesus alone, because he died for your sins. And so stop depending on sacraments, ceremonies, anything, but casting yourself on Christ and asking him to change your heart. And you're like, Brother Alan, I love when you give the gospel to them on saved sinners. You tell them like it is. right? But, but let me just say one more thing. While we're on the subject of baptism, you know what troubles me? Is I have heard many of you tell me that you got saved, that you're a Christian now. And we say, okay, we're gonna have a baptism. And people are like, I'm not doing that. I'll do that one next time. <laughs> no, that's okay. Because baptism doesn't get you to heaven. I go, no, I, I agree with that. But help me understand, if the core of being a Christian, our vision statement is to make disciples who make disciples. And Jesus says, go into the world and preach the gospel, make disciples, lead them to Christ. And then he says, number one, baptize them. That's the starting point of following Christ. You, you get saved And then as a demonstration of that, you publicly stand in front of others and you tell how the Lord saved you from your sin. You confess Jesus as your Lord. And a bunch of people go, no, no, I I love Jesus. I want to follow him. I just don't want to get baptized. And Jesus goes, no, you're in the wrong place in line. Go back here. Because he said, go and baptize them and then teach them to obey. And we're going, I don't want to get baptized. Just teach me how to obey. And he goes, I am teaching you how to obey. The first step of obedience is to get baptized. So I really want to challenge you. Some of you are like, well, I was thinking maybe I'll get baptized, you know, like to do it in the Jordan River or the Mediterranean Sea, you know, maybe a few years from now, Casablanca or something like that. I'm going, listen, I know this isn't much. We don't even have a pool. We just have a little plastic thing. I mean, it looks, it looks pretty cool. It looks like a little well, you know, you can be like the woman at the well. But, but the point is, if you're a believer, right, and you know that God has changed your heart and you haven't been baptized, I don't care if you got saved yesterday, you don't even have to pray about it. I wonder if God wants me to be baptized. He says so not because that's what saves you but because that's how you demonstrate that you have died your old life that God has changed your heart and i can tell you this i've never met a christian who said man when i got baptized i really regretted that but i've met a lot of people who go i don't know why i waited so long because they stunted their spiritual growth because i've found frequently that people when they take that step of faith and they go you know what i'm sick of making excuses who cares what my hair looks like who cares what people will think Maybe I'll get a little water in my nose. What will my family think? They're gonna be mad at me. All of a sudden they have this accelerated spiritual growth because they've identified themselves with Christ and the Spirit of God empowers them. So I really wanna encourage you, you're like, dang, Nally tells us the baptism classes are over. But like a good uh, you know, infomercial. But if you call right now, <laughs> I've already talked to Bob, and he said, if there are people who change their mind change their plea, and you go, you know, I really do want to get baptized. Don't do it for me. Please don't. But if God spoke in your heart, and you go, you know what? I am saved, and this, this, I'm, I'm, I want to get baptized, then you let us know. Email us or let us know, and we're going to offer one more class. Don't come here Sunday morning and go, could I still have the class? No, it's too late. But if you're a Christian, and you haven't been baptized, it doesn't save you, but it's right. It's the way that you publicly identify with Christ. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much that the gospel is such good news. But it's only good news after we hear the bad news about us. That we're a lot worse than we thought we were. But that only makes it more splendid. That in spite of what hypocrites and sinners we are. That Christ died to completely forgive us. Lord, I pray for anyone here. Who has not had their heart changed? That as they've been soul searching and thinking, Have I ever, ever been changed? Have I ever been saved? Do I wanna be saved? This morning that you would tell the Lord Jesus Jesus, I wanna follow you. Maybe Jesus recently changed your heart and you know that you're forgiven. Then what will you say right now as Jesus says, Will you be baptized? And if your heart, as a Christian, has come dull or lukewarm or hardened, Jesus hasn't stopped loving you, just repent. And Father, I pray for all of us that in the days to come, that we will continue to be transformed as you show us our flaws. May we repent of them and celebrate the ongoing forgiveness of the gospel so that we can love our wives better, love our husbands, love our children Love our enemies. Love our neighbors. Send us out this week, Lord, rejoicing that you have sent Jesus to take broken sinners and to give us a new start. I pray that more and more people will become born again in this church as we bring our friends to the light and that the grace of God will spread and prisoners, addicts, angry, hating people, depressed people, suicidal people, Sick people, discouraged people, proud people will come to Christ by the dozens. We believe that your spirit wants to work and we pray for this to happen. And may many of our children get converted very early and change their hearts, Lord, and help us to work with them on a changed heart, we pray. And give you all the glory in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, have a wonderful week.